1 Kings chapter 18. Why don't we back up to verse 29. We'll include here kind of the conclusion to one segment of the chapter pertaining to the prophets of Baal and then coming forward to Elijah's turn. 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 29. This is the word of God. Let us hear it. And it came to pass when midday was past, and they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, that there was neither voice nor any to answer, nor any that regarded. And Elijah said unto all the people, Come near unto me. And all the people came near unto him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. And Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, unto whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be thy name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two measures of seed. And he put the wood in order, and cut the bullock in pieces, and laid him on the wood, and said, Fill four barrels with water, and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. And he said, Do it the second time. And they did it the second time. And he said, Do it the third time. And they did it the third time. And the water ran round about the altar. And he filled the trench also with water. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel, and that I am thy servant, and that I have done all these things at thy word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that thou art the Lord God, and that thou hast turned their heart back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, he is the God. The Lord, he is the God. And Elijah said unto them, Take the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they took them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slew them there. Amen. We'll end our reading in verse 40. And we know that the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. Verse 38, we read these climactic words. Then the fire of the Lord fell. Then the fire of the Lord fell. In our last study, we noted that in this contest for the vindication of God, and therefore for the vindication of truth, 
The 450 prophets of Baal were deferred to so they could go first. Recall, if you will, that they were given much time to call upon their God. In fact, they were basically given all day to call on their God. It wasn't until noon that Elijah took to mocking them. So we read in verse 27, And it came to pass at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is talking, or he is pursuing, or he is in a journey, or peradventure he sleepeth and must be awaked. You remember what I said last time about the extent of Elijah's sarcasm that is captured in another English translation, which instead of reading that their God was pursuing, as the authorized version reads, this version and others like it read, perhaps he is relieving himself. In other words, their God had to go to the bathroom. Oh, what a mocker Elijah was. And what a show the prophets of Baal put on. We considered in our last study that it is not uncommon for the adherents of false religion to demonstrate intense devotion to that false religion. The prophets of Baal do this by leaping about and cutting themselves with knives and lancets till their blood gushed out upon them. I would imagine that as impressive as their display might have appeared eventually or initially, eventually it must have become tedious, the more so since we read in verse 29 that at the time of the regular evening sacrifice arrived, which would have been taking place to the south, that evening sacrifice would have at that moment have been taking place to the south in the city of Jerusalem. We read with regard to the prophets of Baal, there was neither voice, not any to answer, nor any that regarded I imagine the whole thing became rather tedious to that viewing crowd at some point, this intense devotion notwithstanding. Their time was up. I'm inclined to think that their energy was spent. Perhaps they consoled themselves by thinking that even though they had failed, surely Elijah would do no better And once he proved to be as phony as they had demonstrated themselves to be, the prophets of Baal could go back to enjoying the advantage of their numbers, as well as the advantage of the court of Ahab and Jezebel, and they could do to Elijah what had been done to several other prophets of the Lord. They could put him to death and let Elijah's execution stand as proof for their false god. What a suspense begins to build, however, when we read in verse 30, And Elijah said unto all the people, Come near unto me. Oh, I can almost hear a drum roll in the background of this in my mind's eye. A timpani roll, if you will. And in a very calm fashion, he proceeds to repair an altar of the Lord that had been torn down. 
Interesting to note the prominence of the number 12 in these verses. Elijah builds his altar with 12 stones, each stone standing for one of the 12 tribes of Israel. There's still a recognition on his part and on God's part that even though the nation had been divided at that point in history into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, They were still viewed as a unified and single people of God. Hence, 12 stones. And when Elijah called for the sacrificial animal to be doused with water three times, we read in verse 33 that this was done with four barrels of water, four barrels three times. That comes to 12 Skeptics of the Bible have wondered where four barrels of water could have come from since they were in the middle of a drought that had lasted for three and a half years up to that point. A little geography, however, would reveal the proximity of Mount Carmel to the salt water of the Mediterranean Sea, where this water in all likelihood would have been drawn from. And what must that crowd have been thinking when Elijah called for those barrels of water to be poured over the sacrifice? Put yourself in that crowd in your mind's eye and ask yourself, what would you have been thinking to see that scene when the water ran round about the altar and even filled the trench that had been dug around it? Surely that crowd must have thought that either Elijah was utterly mad or that something unmistakably traceable to the hand of God alone was about to take place. And then Elijah prayed. He didn't imitate the fanciful devotion of the prophets of Baal. He simply prayed and prayed, I believe, the way he'd always prayed, with a consciousness that his God was the covenant-keeping God. This becomes apparent when we read his words in verse 36, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and, and of Israel, rather. And then take note of his specific prayer request, because this is a prayer request we do well to make our own on a number of levels. Here is something we want for our own hearts and for our children and for our church and for our nation. Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel. Oh, don't we need to have that prayer request answered today? Doesn't that petition resemble the petition the Lord Jesus would teach his disciples to pray in the Lord's Prayer when he would say in Matthew 6 and verse 9, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Let thy name be hallowed. Let thy name be set apart from all others. That's what we pray for when we pray for the Lord's name to be hallowed for the Lord's name to be set apart and distinguished from all others. And when Elijah, or when God answered Elijah's prayer, the way he does in verse 38, 
then we see that the immediate effect was for the name of God to be hallowed. What a climax to the narrative is given to us in verse 38, where we read, Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. This was something that was more than just fire. More than simply a lightning strike, if you will. For a fire to consume the sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust was a sure indication that this was a supernatural manifestation of God himself. The dull hearts of the Israelites that halted between two opinions back in verse 21 certainly saw it that way. And so we read in verse 39 their response to the falling fire. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, he is the God. The Lord, he is the God. This is what I mean by the Lord's name being hallowed. Now they recognized who God truly was. And it is the Lord. And you'll notice the term Lord there in all capital letters. This is Jehovah God. Now, like I said, this makes for a very captivating climax to a very suspenseful story. But what I'm wondering this morning is, why are we even given this story in the Bible? Is this story given to us so that we might simply marvel at how exciting that episode in the history of Israel was to the children of Israel that were there to witness that spectacular event of the fire falling? I don't believe that for a moment. And if that were the case, if this account was only given to us so that we might marvel at something that took place thousands of years ago in history, the Bible really wouldn't be terribly different from any other book. There are plenty of books, you see, that can impress us by the experience of others from a long time ago. I believe there's a deeper and a spiritual reason why this account of the Lord answering by fire is given to us. Could it be that we find ourselves in need of the same thing that the Israelites needed at that time? Do we find ourselves in need of the same thing today? What were they in need of? And what do we find ourselves in need of today? Well, that's how I want to approach this climax to the story of Elijah this morning. I've entitled the message, When the Lord Answers by Fire. When the Lord Answers by Fire. And I want you to think with me on what happens when the Lord answers by fire. And in the course of our study, we'll need to consider just how the Lord answers by fire today. So let's think first of all, 
that when the Lord answers by fire, as he did on that occasion, you can say, point number one, souls become convinced of God. Souls become convinced of God. How long halt ye between two opinions, Elijah asked back in verse 21. If the Lord be God, follow him, but if Baal, then follow him. And you may recall that that is basically the issue that sets up this contest. How long halt ye between two opinions? And you remember the reaction of the people when Elijah put that question to them. Verse 21 goes on to say, And the people answered him not a word. Total silence. It would seem, wouldn't it, that the crowd on hand at that moment was wholly indifferent to the issue. I suppose a number of them would have shrugged their shoulders and maybe said to themselves, what difference does it make? In their minds, probably neither the Lord or Baal were thought to be very real. They were both such distant entities that neither of them were considered to be anything beyond fables or myths. Now it's true that the Israelites had a glorious heritage of following Jehovah. They were probably aware of the stories that their parents had told them of how they had been slaves in Egypt and then the Lord delivered them from their slavery by unleashing plagues upon the Egyptians and eventually dividing the Red Sea before them so they could cross over on dry land. And perhaps they knew the story of how the Lord had descended by fire on Mount Sinai and how the voice of the Lord had thundered the Ten Commandments. But all of that would have been probably very nearly a thousand years from their time. Long enough for the truth of such stories to come to be regarded as fables or myths. In their own time, they do nothing of such powerful manifestations of God. So they had arguably become pragmatists. And pragmatists follow the path of least resistance. And the path of least resistance in those days meant that you showed respect for the false gods of Jezebel and Ahab. You want to live your life peacefully. You want to be left alone. Uh, you just uh, play along with it, whether you think there's anything to it or not. This is the God that Jezebel worships and that Ahab, uh, in turn, worships. So leave the whole matter alone for your own peace and well-being. Pragmatists. But when the Lord answered Elijah's prayer by fire, all such questions or doubts were instantly removed and it became at once readily apparent that the Lord was God and he was not some distant story, but was in fact all-powerful and holy the same God that had struck fear in the lives of their ancient fathers, 
by descending on Mount Sinai in smoke and flaming fire with the sound of a trumpet exceeding loud, had now manifested himself to them in a descending fire that did much more than ordinary fires did. This fire did much more, you see, than burn the things that were flammable. This fire burned and consumed the sacrifice and the wood and the rocks and the dust and then licked up the water in the trench. What do you suppose that spot must have looked like afterwards except for one level charred uh, plot of ground where that altar had existed, now completely vanished except for perhaps the charred ground to reveal that it had been there in the first place. Oh, this was indeed and unmistakably the true and living God who had the power and might to destroy them all for their indifference and idolatry. And so it is throughout the history of redemption that there are seasons when God seems to be far removed and the very notion of God seems to be theory or myth. And when this happens, the people of God feel the reproach of it. In Psalm 42, we read of the longing of the psalmist for God and the reproach he feels by the absence of God. As the heart panteth after the water brook, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. My soul thirsteth for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my meat day and night, while they continually say unto me, Where is thy God? You get a picture of the psalmist's longing and the reproach that he felt. Who is your God any more than any other God? I suppose the thinking would have went. And in Psalm 115, in verse 2, the psalmist wonders, Wherefore should the heathen say, Where is now their God? I don't think I need to convince anyone here that the heathen are saying exactly the same thing today, at this very time. And it's only because they feel that God is so distant as to be unreal that they feel the liberty to become very bold in their promotion of sin and all manner of moral perversity. The only reason they think they can do this is because there is no God. Where is your God? He hasn't stepped in to put a stop to it. He must only be a theory on the part of you Christians. One of many theories held by any number of devotees to various religions. And it means nothing to them that God once manifested himself by fire in the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. And it means nothing to them that before that, when God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, Genesis 6 and verse 5, that he judged the entire world with a universal flood. 
These things are not even regarded as true, but are thought to be mere fictional stories. It underscores the need, doesn't it, for Christians to be seeking the Lord as never before for a manifestation of fire. Not necessarily a literal fire, but the fire of revival, the fire of Pentecost that we read of earlier in the service. In that same 115th Psalm that I quoted a moment ago, where the psalmist cites the heathen asking the question, where is now their God? He answers his own question in the next verse. But our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. Do you believe that this morning? Dear believer in Christ, Do you believe the account in the book of Acts that speaks to us of the risen Christ? And when he had spoken these things, that is Christ, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven." If you believe that, if you believe that your Savior is risen and ascended into heaven, then your prayer should be and must be, Lord, send the fire. Send the fire. It's a title, you know, to a hymn in our hymn book. Thou Christ of burning, cleansing flame, send the fire send the fire. Thy blood-bought gift today we claim. Send the fire, send the fire. Look down and see this waiting host. Give us the promised Holy Ghost. We want another Pentecost. Send the fire, send the fire. When the Lord answered Elijah's prayer and sent the fire, the Israelites became convinced that the Lord, Jehovah, was God. When Christ in heaven sends the promised Pentecostal Holy Ghost, the idolaters of this sin-sick nation will be convinced of the same thing. This is what happens in revival, you know. The Lord draws near, and conviction of sin follows, and idolaters become convinced that Christ is God. So that's the first thing that happens when the Lord answers by fire. They become conscious of God. Let's think next that when the Lord answers by fire, secondly, Souls bow down in solemn reverence. Souls bow down in solemn reverence. Verse 39, you see, not only records for us the confession of the convinced idolaters, it also records for us the manner in which they made their confession. Notice that it says, 
when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is the God, the Lord, he is the God. That's a repeated pattern, you know, that you find throughout the scriptures. When the Lord manifests himself in power and holiness, the witnesses of his majestic splendor and power fall down. Even the Apostle John on the Isle of Patmos, the same John who had known Christ intimately during Christ's time in this world, the same John that leaned on Christ's breath during that Passover supper, we read of him in Revelation 1 that when he turned to see the voice that spoke to him and beheld Christ clothed with a garment down to the foot and girt about the paps with a golden girdle, his head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like undefined brass as if they burned in a furnace and his voice as the sound of many waters and he had in his hand his right hand seven stars and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength and then verse 17 records the impact of this vision on John where we read in that verse and when I saw him I fell at his feet as dead. This is the Apostle John now who responds to such a glorious revelation of Christ by falling at his feet as dead. Oh, you could multiply examples to demonstrate this pattern. I know I've done this in the past. I'll leave it with the Apostle John for now. Such is the contrast between a holy God and sinful men that men, even saints, are struck with a trembling fear. Same thing came about Isaiah. So, I guess I'll cite one more example. Isaiah 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. In our day, that kind of reverence is conspicuous by its absence. Indeed, it's not hard for me to picture in our day a scene that perhaps has taken place. I don't know that this has taken place, but it shouldn't surprise me to learn, if it has, that in some giant megachurch, 
that has a large stage and all the latest sound equipment and the capacity for creating special effects. Can you see the scene in 1 Kings 18 being performed on a stage with all the lightning and the, or the lighting and the amplification and the special effects that would be used to recreate the scene in our text? And once the scene had been performed, what do you suppose the reaction would be? Well, the people would undoubtedly stand and give a rousing applause for what they had just seen and heard. What an impressive imitation, so they would reason. Now there's something in our text that we should take special note of which would contribute, which should contribute all the more to our reverential awe. You'll notice that when the fire fell from the Lord, it fell upon the sacrifice. Verse 38 tells us that the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice, and then the wood and the stones and the dust etc. It fell on the sacrifice. What a foreshadowing we find in this display of fire of a different scene. That scene when Christ himself hung suspended between heaven and earth, nailed to a cross. And we're told that there was darkness upon the earth from the sixth to the ninth hour, and during that period of darkness, the cry would come from Christ, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The veil of darkness must be drawn across such a scene because we cannot fathom what it must have meant for Christ to bear his Father's wrath. But this much we can say, that because he's revealed to be the propitiation for our sins, and never lose sight of the meaning of that term, propitiation, that's a Bible word. It's a word that points to Christ as the wrath bearer because he's revealed to be the propitiation for our sins. We are able to say of him that when the fire of his father's wrath fell, it was not the fire that consumed the sacrifice, but the sacrifice that consumed the fire. And if you believe in Christ, that he is the savior of sinners, and that he is your personal Lord and Savior, then you should find yourself bowing before him in your heart in solemn and humble and thankful reverence as you confess like Doubting Thomas eventually would that he is your Lord and your God. When the Lord answers by fire then, we find idolaters being, con being convinced that he's God, and we find them confessing him to be God in solemn reverence. There remains one more point for us to consider briefly, and that is this. When the Lord answered by fire, mortification takes place. Mortification takes place. 
Verse 40 calls our attention to something that skeptics, I suppose, would find cruel and out of character for God or for God's prophet. We read, And Elijah said unto them, Take the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they took them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slew them there. This was in keeping with what the law of God called for when it came to those that would lead the Israelites astray to worship and service false gods. It only seems harsh when we fail to recognize the character of God and the high crime of breaking the first commandment. Now, if the Lord is not real but is only fictional, the same as other false gods, then yes, this execution of the prophets of Baal would be harsh and cruel. Why should one false religion or the adherents of it uh, put to death so many adherents of another false religion? But if God is true, if God is real, if God is holy, if God is powerful, if God is the covenant-keeping God, then that puts the whole thing in an altogether different light. And God had answered by fire, and it so manifested himself that it became evident at once how criminal the worship of false gods was. Now, I don't believe that we live in a day where it falls on us as Christians to carry out such actions. I'm aware that there are some branches of Christianity that do think that. Oh, pity the poor people that don't conform to their definition of orthodoxy. Are the covenant theologians going to put the dispensationalists to death? Are the Calvinists going to execute of the Arminians, or vice versa? Are the Baptists going to put the Presbyterians to death on the basis that they're heretics? Uh, that, that doesn't fall on us today. And probably for that very reason, I don't think we could execute it very well. Our warfare is spiritual, and the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but are spiritual and are mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. And it's interesting to note, and this was actually a case that was brought up, or a verse that was brought up even against Protestants, who, like Catholics, were executing um, Roman Catholics, and vice versa. Servetus isn't the only example of that in church history. And when such a thing was being brought up, an argument against that practice was drawn from uh, the parable of the good seed and the tares being sown in the same field. And we're taught that both are allowed to grow up together, lest the good seed be damaged. We're also assured that the Lord himself will take it upon himself to sort it all out when he returns. So no, I, I don't look at this practice of Elijah as being one that's to be imitated by us in literal fashion these days. We are, however, to be engaged in the spiritual practice of mortifying the flesh. 
So we read in Romans 8 and verse 12, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. It is very much a task committed to us to mortify, which means put to death the deeds of the flesh, the deeds of our carnal natures. In Colossians 3 and verse 5, Paul goes into more detail about what this mortification process looks like when he says, Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry, for which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. And a few verses later, in that same chapter, Colossians 3 and verse 8, But now ye also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds, and to put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. And still later, a few verses down in Colossians 3 and verse 12, Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also ye are called in one body, and be ye thankful. This is how we practice mortification. This is how we put to death our carnal natures, our fleshly impulses, and as Elijah said with regard to the prophets of Baal, don't let any one of them escape. So should we say the same thing with regard to our carnal lusts. In an act of faith, we put off the old man and put on the new. And then we strive to put to death our besetting sins and we humbly and gratefully let the peace of God rule in our hearts, knowing as we do that when the fire of God's wrath fell upon his Son instead of us, our peace with God was made. Let's keep in mind then this portion of First Kings, and especially remember that it's not given to us merely to impress us with something that really and literally did take place thousands of years ago. It was given for our instruction that we too might be convinced of the truth of God and Christ so that we might bow before him in solemn reverence as we confess his name and then devote ourselves to dying to sin and living to him. Oh, may God stamp his word on our hearts then for his name's sake.
Let's close in prayer. O oh Lord, as we bow in thy presence now and bring this meeting to a close, we do ask of thee, dear Lord, that thou wilt help us to approach this story rightly. We pray, dear Lord, that you'll help us not simply to be impressed with something that took place historically a long time ago, but may we understand, O oh Lord, that this story has lessons for us to draw from in our day. Oh, how we need, O oh Lord, in our own hearts to be convinced to the depth of our being that Thou art truly God, that we're not following cunningly devised fables. How we need, O oh Lord, for this nation to learn that lesson, for we do bear the reproach of them scoffing at us as they scoff at Thee and break Thy laws and have no respect for Thee or Thy ways or Thy people. Oh, Lord, how different it will be if thou wilt send the fire. We pray for it, Lord. We pray for the fire of Pentecost. We pray for the blessed Holy Spirit to move in such a way that there is no room for denying the reality and truth of the true and living God. And may our souls along with the souls of others, especially those that are lost. May we all be compelled to bow before thee in solemn reverence, and may we then in humble gratitude and in the power of thy Spirit mortify the deeds of the flesh as we pursue after holiness. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.